Why don't you turn with me again to 3rd John. This is uh, our last sermon in John's epistles. Lord willing, next week we will have something of a traditional Palm Sunday sermon and then Easter. And then we plan on kind of focusing this year on the ascension of Christ coming off of Easter for a few weeks before we get into another sermon series. So uh, we began looking at John's letters at the end, or at the beginning, rather, of October, and we've had a few breaks along the way, uh, several missions, emphasis, weekends, and speakers, and here, here we are. I think the children are dismissed to their class. Maybe there hasn't been a slide, but I think it's intended. Half are going, half aren't sure. Why don't you go? We'll see what happens. It'll be like Hunger Games, you know. We'll see who survives. Just kidding. No, there's some people back there. Uh, let me pray, uh, and then we'll look at the second half of Third John together. Would you pray with me one more time? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John's letters of assurance and correction and strengthening. We pray that you would assure us and strengthen us. Would you help even the average church member, the Gaius in our midst, uh, to be reminded of the importance of some basic truths? Father, would you reorient our hearts towards your word? Would you draw sinners to yourself and strengthen your church for your great name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing you've all heard it before. This is Jeopardy, right? It's a bad impersonation, but you've heard you remember the voice, right? And, and I stopped watching long before anyone but Alex Trebek, so I'm just going to go with Alex as the host. I don't know who it is today. Uh, but just imagine this is Jeopardy now. And one of the categories that comes up on the screen is language on the internet. And you're a contestant and you say, Alex, I'll take language on the internet for 500. And then he says, here's the answer. Someone who has a following in a distinct niche with whom they actively engage, or maybe he says this. Someone who has the power to affect others' opinions because of their authority or their relationship with their audience. And you get on your buzzer, you know, and he chooses you and you say, what is an influencer? What is an influencer? Someone who has a following in a distinct niche. And then uses that by engaging with them to maybe sell a brand, to get more followers, to inform, to correct. An influencer, it's a word that really wasn't used in any sense before 2015. So it's a new word, but we all know what it is. There's social media influencers. There might be other internet influencers. These are people who, who have a following. Well, back in the first century, there were influencers. And we have one in our passage, Diotrephes. He was an influencer. He influenced the church. And of course, we need to remember that in the first century, any influencer would have had to have been present. Maybe could have influenced through the occasional letter. I think that was fairly rare. They would have had to have been in the gathering to be an influencer in the church. Maybe a teacher, maybe, maybe a leader. But he clearly was an influencer. Maybe he influenced, we don't know, but maybe he influenced by saying who could and couldn't stay with him. Hosting. 
hospitality. We talked about this last week in terms of missions. Maybe he influenced by, he was one of the homes where the church would gather in. He had a larger home. Maybe he was a man of means and would say, okay, these people can gather, these people can't. Or if these people are a part of our church, I'm no longer hosting. Again, these are just guesses based on the setting. We, we don't know entirely how he influenced. Today, influencers in the church are usually a recognized leader. Maybe it's an elder, maybe it's a deacon, maybe it's a long-standing member. Maybe it's someone who's really a uh, big personality, something like that. Well-connected in the church, they're an influencer. But of course, in the internet age, the influencers don't have to be in our midst. They can be online, they could be on social media, they could have a YouTube channel, they could be on the radio, they could pastor or not pastor, they could be qualified as an elder or not qualified at all. In fact, you only know about them what they tell you. It's curated. It comes mediated. And so we see in our passage the importance of being aware of influencers but also the importance of being present, of having someone in your midst. This morning, I want to look at verses 9 through 15 along three points. I'll give them to you now, then we'll step through them. I think you'll see them clearly from our passage. Point number one, beware of self-appointed and slanderous influencers. Secondly, be careful what you imitate. And then third, Begin prioritizing face-to-face relationships. Let's begin with point number one. Beware of self-appointed and slanderous influencers. You see this in verses 9 and 10. Look again at verse 9 in 3 John. 3 John verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority. Maybe it was a a previous letter. Maybe it was a letter that was not inspired, but sent by John to to the church. We, We don't know, but we learn about Diotrephes. And he's described initially here as someone who puts himself first, doesn't acknowledge John and the apostolic authority that John would have brought to this church. He is what we might call a self-appointed influencer. It's interesting to note, though, when we come to Diotrephes, I actually assumed until I was studying it this week that he was a false teacher, but we're not told that. If he was a false teacher, you remember what John would have called him, right? An antichrist, a deceiver. He was so clear in his first letter, wasn't he? So we have someone that, to the best of our knowledge, is in the church and agrees with the church, but disagrees with John. He has issue with the leaders. He's influencing. Was he a a leader in the church? We don't know. Was he influencing formally, informally? We don't know. But I think what is clear is that he had influence. Look at the end of verse 10, right? He's putting some out of the church. How is he doing that? We don't know. Formally, informally, we don't know. Is he not letting them into his house? Literally, we we don't know. But he had influence and he was using that influence. It says back in verse 9, he likes to put himself first. This is in contrast, of course, with what we saw last week. Those who do and live for the sake of the name. 
And he's doing and living for the sake of himself. He loves to have preeminence in the church amongst Christians. To be viewed as important, significant. Of course, we know from Colossians 1 that Christ alone is to have preeminence. So if we go back to 2 John, some were, were going on ahead doctrinally. This one, Diotrephes, loved to go on ahead in terms of authority, right? Ahead of John and by implication ahead of Christ, the apostolic teaching. He is interested in leading, in influencing, not serving, but putting himself first. I think I want to encourage you this morning. I think this is what we might call a discernment passage. This is a passage where we can best apply it by learning to ask good questions as Christians. When you see a leader putting themselves forward, maybe online, maybe another medium, maybe in the church, ask yourself questions like this. Have they been formally recognized? And if so, by who? What was the, what was the vetting process? Right? Were they recognized by, by the church as a whole? Or just by a few in the church. We still, in our constitution, uh, value and practice something called ordination. Ordination. Usually there's a council called an ordination council where recognized church leaders from other churches come together and together examine an individual in regards to their life and doctrine and then make a recommendation to the church to, to recognize someone or to ordain them. The reason why that I think is still a wise practice is because it's not just even one church saying we ordain this person. It's actually a group of leaders saying we together. So ordination is normally recognized by other churches because it was done in cooperation with other churches. It's transferable. That matters. The guy that you like to watch on YouTube who talks about God, I bet you don't know where he lives, if he's a church member, if he goes to church, and if he's elder qualified or if he's ordained. I think it would be good to know things like that. I think, I think John would want us to know things like that. To be able to, to use discernment. Okay, is this a recognized leader? Notice what else he says there in verse 9. What a line, right? Does not acknowledge our authority. He has an issue with John and the brothers sent out by John. He has an issue with an apostle who's teaching apostolic teaching. He's no Gaius, right? Like we saw last week. Look back at verse 5, right? He writes to Gaius, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Now look at verse 10 regarding Diotrephes. If I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. He is self-appointed. Let me encourage you again to ask this question. Of influencers. It's not wrong to be influenced by others to have teachers in your life, but let me encourage you to ask this question. At what church are they a member? Who's their pastor? Why does it appear 
The answer to those questions so rarely in author and speaker biographies. Why doesn't the bio tell you where they live, where they attend church? That I think should concern us. No, it does sometimes include it, and I think it's great when it's included. Who was Ravi Zacharias's pastor? Who did James McDonald and Mark Driscoll, pastors, submit to? Whose authority did they acknowledge? How about that traveling evangelist from yesteryear? What local church is that celebrity speaker? Is that YouTube influencer? Is that Christian blogger a member of and known by? Why are they seeking to influence people outside of their local church and not first in their local church? Why hasn't that teacher been recognized as a pastor by those he serves among? Who are they accountable to? In the New Testament, it's not the board of the nonprofit. It's the local church. So, again, ask questions like, does, does any church know this influencer well enough to see patterns of sin? Again, online, you only see what they want you to see. Have they submitted to that church's authority? Or simply, where are they a member? Notice verse 10. Not only are they self-appointed influencers, they're also slanderous. John says they're talking wicked nonsense. This influencer, Diotrephes, was speaking lies as if it was true. It's not simply, oh man, I didn't mean it. No, this is wicked. And it's against John. Did you note this? It's against us, he says, against him and his associates, those associated with the Apostle John. So this is gossip. This is what we often call slander. What is, what is gossip? Could be defined this way, speaking evil against another. James 4.11 condemns it explicitly. Could be defined as spreading harmful information done in a way that's intended to harm. I think that's important. So it may be a lie, but it may not be a lie, actually. It may be true, but it's, it's spread to diminish another person. It's not just information that needs to be shared. Sometimes we do need to share information about others. But it's information shared, not so that someone can pray or that someone could be encouraged or informed or built up. In violation, right, of a passage like Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's how one preacher put it. It involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face. Why is it so serious in the church, this kind of slander, this kind of gossip? It creates an environment of suspicion. If they're willing to say that about that person behind their back, what are they saying about me behind mine? It ruins reputations. 
I have, not often, but I have been on the receiving end, someone saying something slanderous about me, and I've had them apologize. What I haven't had is them go and tell the people they spread their slander to that they were wrong. Reputations are ruined, aren't they? It manipulates people into taking sides when that's just not needed. They don't need to take sides, right? It kind of forces the issue. Who are you with? It gives the power to influence how people think someone else and of of you. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. You have part of it in your bulletin. What should we do when we believe we're hearing this kind of slander or gossip? This is from his lectures to my students. This is Spurgeon now. If there were no listening ears, there would be no tail-bearing tongues. While you are a buyer of ill wares, the demand will create the supply and the factories of falsehood will be working full time. No one wishes to become a creator of lies. And yet he who hears slanders with pleasure and believes them with readiness will hatch many a brood into active life. So what do you do when you hear what you're thinking? Well, is that is that gossip? Should I be listening to this? Ask questions like this. Maybe literally bring up a question like this graciously, but directly ask a question like this. Why are you telling me this? Ask yourself, why are they telling me this? Or a question like this. What is the difference between what you're telling me and gossip? Help me understand how this isn't slander. Or... How is your telling me that thought, complaint, information, how is that going to help me and you love God, love our brothers in the church better, knit us closer together? Again, Spurgeon, if there were no listening ears, there would be no tail-bearing tongues. Of course, he goes further than that in the second half of verse 10. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He stops those who want to. He puts them out of the church. He doesn't want people practicing Christian hospitality. He doesn't want Gaius listening to John. He wants to prevent unity and hospitality from happening. He's willing to remove them. Maybe it's formal excommunication. Maybe it's just practically exclude people like that. So his his influence is not in line with the truth, not in line with apostolic teaching, not in line with John and those sent out by John. He's tried to silence letters that John has written back in verse 9. Maybe his issue is with the truth. Maybe his issue is with John. Maybe the issue is what we saw initially. It's really him. He has to be number one. And he will silence those who threaten his position. So point number one. Beware of self-appointed and slanderous influencers. Beware of self-appointed and slanderous influencers. Now let's go down to verses 11 and 12. Be careful what you imitate. Be careful what you imitate. Now you'll remember John in his letters likes to use duality, right? This, this contrast of light and darkness. We saw this initially back in 1 John chapter 1. God is light. So before we can talk about sin and sin in the church and sin in the life of a Christian, we need to start with this absolute God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. 
or death and life or evil and good. And and that's the contrast we have here in verse 11. Look at verse 11 of 3 John. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. He speaks in stark contrast and he puts forward this command. Imitate. Imitate. Use as a model, not evil, but good. Not Diotrephes, but who he's going to talk about in verse 12, Demetrius. Emulate. Follow. The the Greek word is where we get our English word, mimic. Mimic. Uh, So uh, I I grew up not golfing regularly, uh, but I have a cousin who's just two months younger than me. Our moms are twins. Him and I were like brothers growing up. And we would go to uh, pitch and putt or par threes. If you play these, they're like smaller golf courses. You just need to bring like two or three clubs. And there was one by our house that was lit up. So we could work all day. And then in the evening, we could go even after dark and play golf under the lights. Small course. It was a lot of fun. A lot of great memories. Uh, and, and in that, uh, Ethan, my cousin, knew what he was doing. And I, I didn't. My training was putt-putt, Right? And then you got a chip and putt, right? Uh, and so what I would do is I would let him go first, right? So he, he can look and see how, how, how far it is, how hard he needs to swing. He would, he would line himself up. And so I would just mimic him. Now, the ball didn't always mimic his ball. But, but I was just trying to do what he did. So how he swang, I, I wanted to swing that way. I, I wanted to mimic him. That's the idea here. He's saying, be careful who you mimic. Just because they're influential, just because they're leaders in some sense, don't don't necessarily follow them. Be careful who, be careful what, good or evil, you mimic. The word is used by by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. His desire to give give to you in ourselves an example to imitate. Or in Hebrews 11, speaking of church leaders, the author of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith and imitate, or, or the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So don't imitate evil behavior, imitate good behavior. And then verse 12, he gives an example of Demetrius. Now, Demetrius may have been the man who delivered maybe all three or maybe just this letter. So he's saying, okay, let me commend the man who's bringing you this message, John says. He has a good testimony or a good report. Notice who it's from. Who is he well spoken of by? It's, It's from everyone. And from the truth itself, what a description. He has a good testimony from the truth itself. The truth testifies that he's the real deal. The truth testifies that he's someone whose life has been changed by the gospel, who is trustworthy, who's worth mimicking. John and his associates, the friends, also give their testimony. They commend this brother, Demetrius. He's worthy of emulation. Gaius would have known more about him because he was with him and he could have considered the outcome of his way of life and imitated it. The reality is that sometimes in the church, we fail to get this basic truth is that we 
we learn not just by, by education, but by imitation. We can think, okay, we're going to do discipleship. And we think teach rather than also show. That's why the word mentor is such a good word, isn't it? A mentor. You can have mentors in all sorts of areas of life, vocation and other things. It's someone who's going to show you how to do it. It's someone who says, I'm going to do it and, and you watch. And then let's get together. We'll talk about it. And then eventually you're going to do it and I'm going to watch. And I'm going to give you some feedback. And then eventually you're going to do it and someone else is going to watch you and it's going to start all over again, right? It's this idea of, of sharing a life. Not just teaching, hey, here's three truths you need to know, but also showing. Of course, this requires us to know each other. This requires us to open up our lives so others can see in. Maybe there's someone in this church that the Lord is bringing to mind that you would, you would love to get time with. And, and maybe the barriers, you just haven't been intentional. You haven't asked. You haven't said, hey, can I, I'd love to spend more time with you. I'd, I'd love to be more intentional in following your example. When you don't know how to navigate a heartache or a struggle, look around. There's brothers and sisters who have done it and done it well. And you can learn from the ways that God has led them through and what he's taught them through their heartaches and their struggles. Hear testimonies of provision. Watch so that you can mimic. Oftentimes we think we have to chip off the tee first. But the reality is others have done it before and we can come along behind and see and learn and begin to swing better ourselves. Friends, you can't imitate what you can't see. So you have to get time with people. Interact with their lives so that you can mimic your life after theirs. Third point, begin prioritizing face-to-face relationships. This is the and This is the conclusion. This is the verses that we usually gloss over and assume we're done. But I think there's something for us here. Begin prioritizing face-to-face relationships. This is verses 13 through 15. John has had a lot to say. We picked up at that verse Nine. I have written something uh, to the church. We saw this in verse 13 now. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. He wants to see them. Verse 14, I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. He wants to be with them when he confronts. Look again at verse 10. If I come, I will bring up what Diotrephes is doing. He knows the value of being present when you have a hard word to say. But he also wants to see them and just encourage them and be encouraged by them. We saw that in verse 14. I I really hope this is my longing. Friends, posts on social media can't compete with face-to-face. Isn't it ironic that, that Facebook has not only led us to, I think, misdefine what a friend is, but it can't deliver on on what we long for, what we've longed for from our earliest moments of infancy. I love this with Asa. He's almost one. But he just wants to know if you're going to look at him and smile. If you're in the room and your back is to him, he can sense it and he'll let you know. He, In a literal sense, he wants to be face to face. 
He wants to know, okay, when you leave the room, are you going to come back? He, he, he knows the importance of another's face, being with them, being present in the same room. And I think John knew what we as American, American Christians need to rediscover. When it's something hard we need to say, like confronting a diatrophies is slanderous gossip. Whether it's something encouraging and affirming, like, like a, a letter. John knew the value of face-to-face relationships. He was happy to do ministry by letters. He was happy to do ministry by sending a messenger when he needed to. But his longing was to do it face-to-face so that the tone could be seen and the facial expressions could be seen. The touch could be felt. The smile could be observed. We experience love, I think, in a significant way only when present with other believers. In a way that can't really be mediated through a card, as good as cards are. Or a letter, as good as letters are. Or an email, or a text, or a screen. Those kind of communications are gifts. They should be used, they should be stewarded, but they're not the same and John knew it and we have more options now and we need to make sure we know it too you can't replace a touch a visit a word spoken and heard time together fellowship enjoyed the enjoyment of another's presence I think in our confused society we as Christians have a place in leading the way in rediscovering and then prioritizing time together So when the church gathers, we, we want to be there. When a friend hurts, we try to get over there. When a hard word needs to be shared, we try to do it in person. And friends, think about it for just a minute. This is baked into the cake of what a local church is. If the local church wasn't a gathering, you could go online and hear a better sermon. You could go online and watch... Music done with greater excellence or more to your preferences. But there's something about local. There's something about gathering. There's something about being in the room that matters. It matters deeply for how God has made us to relate to one another. It's in line with our creation, our identity. To be an image bearer is to relate in this way. Of course, the story of redemption speaks and affirms this, doesn't it? Sin broke the relationship. Adam and Eve literally no longer lived face to face. They lived outside of the garden. Sin broke the relationship, not just vertically, but also horizontally. So we long for that. That kind of trust, that kind of love, that kind of knowledge of one another. To be able to look at someone and to know, are they, are they going to hurt me, sin against me? Or are they going to accept me and love me? Churches are built on these kind of covenanted, committed relationships. And they can only exist in person. Friends, this is what God has done and sought to restore and renew through Christ. Apart from Christ, sin has broken our relationship with God and we are alienated from our creator. And so when we look at the church, 
We want to look at the church. And one lens we can look at it is, see, those people, sinners though they are, getting together is God's undoing of the results of the fall. Won't be completely undone till we get to glory, but it's a reversing of the curse. Ephesians 2, right? So I'm working, God says, through Christ, by the Spirit, in the church, to reconcile individual Christians to their Creator. But then, so that they can bend out that reconciliation towards other sinners, and those relationships can be renewed. So that the relationships, the face-to-faceness, that we long for with God, that's so affected by sin with others, is beginning to be renewed and the effects of the curse undone this side in anticipation of face-to-face worship forever with Christ. So we experience the beauty of the gospel and the effects of the gospel in a unique way in the church gathered local, in the room. Where we experience not the absence of conflict, but the presence of forgiveness. Where we experience love and care from another. All of this is a blood-bought mercy that we can enjoy in this life in Christ. Who has reconciled us to God. And as we repent and believe and bow the knee, can experience that reconciliation through Christ with others as we conclude this series from john's letters i want to remind us of some of the things we've learned from first second and third john just for a few minutes as we conclude let me ask us okay what kind of church are we going to be are we going to be christians are we going to be a church that pursues obedience from assurance Are we going to be Christians who have the confidence God intended for Christians to have? Confidence of our relationship with Him and eternity with Him. John began his first letter talking about what a true Christian does and doesn't have. True Christian is not one who claims fellowship with God while continuing in sin. True Christian does not act like he or she has no sin, but lives in truth and impurity and confesses their sin to renew their relationship with him. Remember 1 John chapter 2, we exhorted, don't sin. If you do sin, remember Jesus is the propitiation and we avoid sin by keeping his Commands. We talked about in John's tender tone the certainty of being forgiven as his child, the certainty of being truly known and truly knowing God, the certainty of having overcome the world. John warned us against false teachers, antichrists, who use the same language, Christian language, but mean other things by it. He encouraged us that, yo, you in Christ, scholar, no, believer in the truth, yes, you know the truth and you abide in him. He reminded us that to be a beloved one, four times in this last letter, it's been throughout all the letters, we haven't noted it every time, beloved, beloved, loved one, loved one of God. You have, as a child of God, confidence. You are loved. You are like the Father, but you are still growing up. So yes, sin is a big deal, but in Christ you will resemble not Satan, your Father, but God in Christ. 
We talked from 1 John chapter 3, the the one-point sermon. You must show Christ-like love to other Christians. And when you fail to, and your heart condemns you, remember what? He's greater than your heart. And he gives you comfort. And out of that comfort, out of that confidence, you can move forward in faithfulness. John exhorted us to test teachings, to use discernment, to distinguish truth from error, to remember that we rely on the Spirit and the Word to do it. We talked not that long ago about this progression that had four stops. Do you remember? It was God's love, salvation through Christ, love for God and love for others. And how each one makes the next one visible, a display of it. We talked about belief in the truth about Jesus and to know that love for God and love for neighbor are completely linked. And we ended his first letter by talking about the confidence that we can have in life and in death and in prayer and even when we sin and in the truth. In Second John, we were reminded that the local church is, is centered around love and truth, echoing so much of what we saw in First John. And yet it's also protected by vigilance and separation. Last week we saw the joy and the necessity and the particulars, the practicals of sending and also the work of those who are sent out. And then this week we have a final warning. Beware of these kind of self-appointed and slanderous influencers. Be careful who you imitate, what you imitate. And so show love. Show love first local. Prioritize face-to-face relationships. I hope the Lord has used these letters to grow your confidence in who you are in Christ as his beloved child. And since you are his beloved child in Christ, how will you then live? Let's pray. Father God, we could ask ourselves, what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of Christians do we want to be? Do we want to be truth light? Obedience low? Love limited? Or do we want to be those who have been so gripped by your love as seen through Christ on the cross in saving sinners that we respond in love for you, love for your word, love for truth, obedience to it, and love for others. Father, I pray that this love for you that looks like love for others, this love for the unseen that looks like love for the seen, would be reflected in how we interact, in who we allow to influence us, in what we imitate, and how we lean in to time spent with one another. Father God, would you strengthen your church through this letter? May we tell the truth about the gospel and its effects reversing the curse and bringing reconciliation not only to the father through christ but with other sinners saved by grace and father god we pray for those here this morning who are outside of christ 
I pray that they would see who Jesus is and what he's done to accomplish their reconciliation. That they might live with you forever, face to face. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.